um, let's, be, let's get started tonight. Uh, I want to just start initially with a, a, just a review of the last few weeks, since last week was business meeting, and then, was last week business meeting? No, last week wasn't business meeting. Uh, so it feels like, it's feel like it's been forever since we met together. Uh, no, so uh, I want to just kind of review some of the most recent things that we've talked about, just to keep it fresh in our mind, to know kind of the pattern, set the pattern for where we're going. The last couple of times that we've met together, we've asked the question, can we be assured, first of all, that God exists? And what we decided last week was we can be assured that God exists. There's plenty of good arguments um, that, that, uh, that God exists. And then anything that we know about God, this is what we talked about last week, anything that we know about God, he has been the one to reveal it to us. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions as we're thinking about this kind of review, uh, or really just one one main question. We know of churches, uh, maybe around the area, but certainly abroad, we've at least heard of churches that have slowly but surely abandoned gospel-centered teaching altogether, right? We, We know of churches that this is the case, even if it's just we know of denominations where this is the case. They've abandoned gospel-centered teaching altogether. They've adopted a lot more liberal thoughts on the Bible. Maybe it's not the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Maybe it's something else, and it's not true, and and maybe we can't entirely trust it. And maybe if there is a God, we don't really know who He is, and if you want to live the way you want to live, that's fine. They've adopted these kinds of ways of thinking about God. My question is, how did they get that way? How did that happen? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it out loud. But if you think about it just for a second, just pause to think, how did that happen? We would assume at some point all of these denominations began with somewhat what we would consider conservative roots. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat. I'm talking about conservative Christian roots. But yet there's liberal branches of every denomination, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, every single one of the denominations has a branch that we would consider liberal, that has forsaken really the Bible as the inerrant, authoritative word of God. And the question that we really as a church have to wrestle with at some point is how did they get that way? Well, I think what happened is that it was slow and steady. It wasn't all of the sudden everybody just decided we don't believe in Jesus anymore. Or we don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God anymore. Or we don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead anymore. I think it was a lot slower than that. I think what happened first, probably, is theology or the understanding of who God is stopped being taught. And then there were lots of different opinions in the pews as far as who they thought God was. And slowly but surely that worked its way out until we get to the Bible and we go, I don't, I don't really know, is that the authoritative word of God? And then they go to a, a, a business meeting where they vote on a new pastor coming in, maybe. 
And the one that they pick is, doesn't believe in the Bible as the authoritative word of God. But it probably took years upon years of that before it finally happened. Now, so let me ask you the question. If we, as a group of people, forsake understanding who God is, really opening the Bible and seeing what the Bible says God is, if we forsake that, where do you think we're headed? Where do you think we will end up? If history is any indicator, in the exact same spot everybody else has. (laughs) Right? So what we're doing might be a foundation, and, and most of the things that we talk about over the last few weeks may have been things that you have already known or you've already uncovered, you've already thought about many times over. But the importance of what we're doing is tremendous because on Sunday morning we get together and there's a sermon preached and there's songs being sung and most of the time we as a congregation will stand in the pew and I admit this is true of even me sometimes we'll stand in the pew and we'll sing the song and maybe the words will really soak into our minds and we'll think about what they mean and sometimes we just take it for granted that everything that's going to be sung that day is fine and good and, and, and all well. And before long, we're singing a song that's not quite doctrinally sound, but we don't really know because we haven't paid much attention to it. So when is the last time that you thought in church, what does that line that I just sang mean? Or have you taken it for granted, maybe, that the songs that we sing on Sunday morning are doctrinally sound? This is how it starts. And what we're doing in this study on Wednesday night, really, all of Wednesday night, regardless of which study we pick up, is we're really trying to train our minds to think rightly about God. That's what we're trying to do. How do we think rightly about God? What are the right things to think about God? And what are the wrong things to think about God? And so tonight, um, we've been, uh, obviously for the last few weeks, we've been laying down uh, first of all, how do we know anything about God? And so we talked about the Word of God and how God has revealed Himself to us over the course of many years. And we laid out where we are now confident, I think, that the Bible is the inerrant and authoritative Word of God, that we can trust it, that it delivers to us truth, and we, it, it can govern our lives. It can train us in righteousness and point us in the right direction. It will never lead us astray. So we had to establish that what we know about God, we know from His Word, which is the Bible, we can read it and we can trust it. And then, obviously, we talked about last week, God Himself. Can we really know who He is? Can we, uh, at least in some regards, wrap our minds around Him? Well, no, not completely, obviously, but we can, we can wrap our minds around certain concepts that He has revealed Himself to us over time, right? We can understand certain things about God, and it's logical to actually believe in, in God. So now we need to take the next step. We need to take the next step forward and, and really ask the question, What is it exactly that God has revealed about himself? What are some of those things that he has said about himself? And so we're going to get, uh, we're going to dive into the attributes of God. 
And we're going to begin talking about some of the attributes of God. And we're not going to cover them probably in the way that you think. I'm not going to put up a list of all the attributes of God and go through them one by one. Um, In fact, we're going to go uh, relatively slowly through the the attributes of God. We're going to talk about them over the the course of the next few weeks. Next week is a business meeting, by the way, so... uh, Please come back for that. But, uh, but after that, we'll go several weeks in a row talking about the attributes of God. And as we think about the attributes of God, like I said, I don't want to just put up a list of all the, all the things that the Bible says about God, that he is creator, that he is redeemer. I don't want to do that right now. What I want to think about is two broad categories, two big categories for the attributes of God as they're revealed to us in Scripture. You have to keep in mind what we're doing as we study the Bible and as we think about who God is, naturally all of us as human beings want to break things down into categories. We have to. It's who we are. It's how we think. We break things down into categories. And so there's two really big categories in regards to the attributes of God. The first is the incommunicable, incommunicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God. Um, how do we define incommunicable attributes? It's like this. Those attributes that God does not have in common with others, with anything other than God. Those attributes that he has that nothing else has. That's an incommunicable attribute. It's not shared, all right? I bet you can't guess what the other one is. The communicable attributes of God. So there's the incommunicable attributes, the ones that the attributes that God has, but he uh, he does not have in common with anybody else or anything else. And then there's the communicable attributes. I, I bet you can't guess the definition for communicable attributes of God. Those things that he has those attributes that God has in common with others. Those attributes that God has in common with others, the communicable attributes of God. That's how we're thinking about these in two broad categories. As we talk about who God is, we're looking at first his incommunicable attributes and then his communicable attributes. As an example of incommunicable attributes, See up here on the, on the screen. God has existed for all eternity. Anybody in here? Eternal. No. Uh, right? God share, has that property uh, uh, really alone for the most part. We'll talk about this in a second. Um, God does not change. Is anybody else in here changed? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope we do. Uh, over time, God does not change. How about uh, God is omnipresent? He is everywhere. That is an attribute God alone has that's not shared uh, by us, right? Now, what would be an example of communicable attributes? Anybody want to give it a, a shot? Communicable attributes. Those things that are shared, that God has, but he shares with us. We have somewhat in common. What's that? Love. love. Explain how you got that. 
Bible says what about God? God is love. And then how is that communicable? How do we, how do we share that? We love one another, right? We have the capacity for love. God is love. So that's a communicable attribute. He has it. It originates with him, but he shares it with us. We have the capacity to love. All right? What else would be an example of another one? By the way, that was the first one. <laughs> Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Got it. An example of another one. Anybody got, want to take a stab at another one? God is holy, and how does he share that with us? He commands us to be holy. So there's a, a holiness that we can participate in that originates with God, but he has shared with us how to be holy. Any other ones? Explain. Okay. God is a spiritual being, and we also, he has put his spirit within us, right? And we can, we can commune with God, so it's a communicable attribute. Some other ones, maybe you might not think about. God is just, he is just, and he has given to us the ability, um, though imperfectly, to impart justice in the world, right? And these are just examples. This is definitely not a, a, a total list. Uh, God is merciful, and we are able to show mercy toward one another. That's a communicable attribute. These things begin with God. They're imparted to us. We can share that with God. Now, th this is not perfect. These are imperfect categories. And, the, and here's the reason why. For the communicable attributes, we can participate in these things with God. But we can never fully participate in these with God. So in other words, we are able to be just, but not as he is just. He is the only one perfectly just. We're able to love, but we're not able to perfectly love as he loves. So it's a communicable attribute, but it's, we're still not as perfect as he is at it, right? We share in it, but we're not perfect. And the incommunicable attributes that we uh, cannot share with God, those are uniquely of God, but they're not completely foreign to us, right? We can understand them and maybe even in some ways participate with Him to one degree or another. What were some of the incommunicable attributes we listed? Name one. He's omnipresent. Now, we like, now, but you're like, well, how can we be everywhere at once? We can't. No, we can't. But it's not a foreign concept to us, even though uh, we, unlike animals, we do have the abilities to communicate with people over long distances. We know we have a presence, if you will, with uh, people in different places where uh, animals don't. What's another incommunicable attribute we talk What's that? Eternality, we, we're, not, we're definitely not eternal as God is eternal, but it's not a foreign concept to us. We, are, we believe in Jesus Christ and therefore have eternal life. So we can, we can conceive of eternality, and in some small way, we will participate in eternality, right? So, um, so they're imperfect categories, but just understand that, that they're not, just because it's incommunicable doesn't mean we can't understand it. 
doesn't mean we don't, we don't know it or we can't even talk about it. We, we, in some ways, can understand it. But here's the, the overriding thought over this whole thing that I really want to think about for just a second is that if God didn't reveal himself to us, we would not know him. It's possible that God could have created us in a black hole and just left us in the dark. Think about that for a second. It's amazing that all over the United States, on Sunday morning, Christians will gather together in places of worship. They'll read from the scriptures, they'll sing songs of praise to a God that they actually know because he has revealed himself to us. When we talk about incommunicable attributes of God, it doesn't mean that he hasn't told us about them. It doesn't mean that we can't understand them. It just means that we don't fully take part in those attributes. When we talk about communicable attributes, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, that we have all these buttoned down, and we can understand them in their totality at all. We're simply talking about the fact that God has revealed himself to us. And when we look at him, we see him, we see these characteristics. Things that he has told us about himself. And we can understand them. Questions, comments, thoughts about those? Communicable, incommunicable attributes of God? Does that make sense so far? All right. So I want to start with the incommunicable attributes of God as we go through these. And we're going to, like we do every week, we're going to, go ahead, Mike. Uh, you had mentioned that these are things we know about these attributes of God because he told us, then is there a distinction between maybe the speaking and the creation aspects of that? Is there a difference between the speaking and the creation aspects of that? Yeah, in creation, just a, just a, a general revelation. Yeah, um, there are, uh, I would say, Paul points to communicable, or sorry, incommunicable attributes of God in creation. His eternal power, his, uh, help me out, divine nature uh, in Romans 1, 18. He says, look, or 1, 18 and following, he says, look, uh, these things are widely known. He's advertised these at large to everybody in the created order. They can generally know about his incommunicable attributes. Um, so that's true in creation. But what we talked about a couple weeks ago is the scriptures are the uh, um, communicating to us through his spoken word, through the prophets, through Jesus Christ, and through now his written word um, are, are sufficient for salvation and training in righteousness. Um, for us to understand more fully who he is to come to the point of salvation. Does that get at what you're asking? Uh, I, just, I didn't know if you were trying to make a distinction between the two. Oh, between the two of incommunicable attributes. No, really, just, just in understanding who God is. And you'll see as we go, we go through, I want to point out some of these in, uh, incommunicable attributes that we're, we're looking at here. Yeah. 
and as as he's revealed us to as he's revealed them to us in his scriptures. Uh, who wants to take Acts seventeen twenty four to twenty five? All right, David. Who wants to take Job forty one eleven? All right, Becky. And was that Blake raising his hand? I was Jeremy. Oh, how about Psalm fifty ten through twelve? These scriptures should point us to the first incommunicable attribute of God. Acts seventeen twenty four to twenty five. When you have it. Job 41.11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Who has given me something I must repay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 50, 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. I love that line. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> that makes me laugh every time I read it. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I find humor in Scripture. I think it's just, it's just funny, uh, the way they puts it. So David's text said he doesn't live in a temple made, by, made with human hands as though he needed anything. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Right, the whole world's mine and everything in it. Remind me what you said again, Becky. Who has a claim against yeah. me that I must pay? Yeah. Everything under heaven belongs to me. Who has a claim against me that I have to pay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. What are those passages communicating to us about God? I don't expect you to nail the term right off the top of your head, but just when you hear those passages, what do they communicate to you about God? Absolute sovereignty, okay. Anything else? He's a creator, so he's over it, okay. Knows. Yeah, owns all. Doesn't need anything. Dependent on no one. I think this... Um, Uni- I, I see these as uniting these three passages. Certainly all, all the things that were mentioned are in those passages. I think the thing that I see that unites all of these passages together is that God has an independence. The only being in all of the, what, what do you want to say, the world, cosmos, <laughs> uh, the universe, the whatever is the biggest thing you can think of in all of existence. Let's put it that way that is completely independent. What do we mean by independence? This is just a definition. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. So in other words, God does not, there's nothing that God lacks that he needs from the created order in any capacity. We think about God as we understand him through his word, as he has revealed himself to us. One thing for sure that is an incommunicable attribute, meaning 
This is not something we have in common with God. This is something that only God possesses, is that he is completely independent. There is nothing that he needs from anyone. There's a reason why this is important, and we'll get to it in just a second. But this definition isn't sufficient. Remember we said these are imperfect categories. So God is independent, but... Let's look at these verses. Isaiah 43, verse 7. This is the only one we're going to look at today, the independence of God. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Who takes it? <laughs> All right, <laughs> Stephen. Uh, Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. Go ahead, Jeannie. Uh, Revelation 4, 11. Uh, uh, Susan. And Isaiah 62, 3 to 5. All right, Hannah Payne. Uh, Stephen, when you have Isaiah 43, verse 7, go ahead and read that. Everyone who is called oh, by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Everyone who I've created for my glory, I have formed him. All right, Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. So as we think about that verse 12, created for the praise of his glory. Revelation 4, 11. Created all things for, what does he say there? Created all things for. Okay, back up before that, just before that. All right. Isaiah 62, 3 to 5. So what do you hear in all of those verses? There's a purpose for which we were created. And what is that purpose? His glory. And what you hear, in, it's phrased in different ways throughout those verses, but you see where he points to mankind, though he doesn't need anything, he creates mankind for his glory. And as we uh, worship Him, as we obey Him, as we are obedient to His will and things like this, follow after we would say Christ, what does He do? He delights in it, right? He rejoices over that. So while God is independent of us and He doesn't need anything from us, in creation, he still rejoices over us. He still is pleased with his people in obedience. 
He still takes joy in his people. Right? So the, the problem is, I think in our culture sometimes we can get uh, this backwards, where we begin to think that maybe God is doing the things that he's doing because he really, at the end of the day, he needs us. He needs something from us. And now, probably most of you are sitting in here going, I don't know that I've ever thought that. I don't think I've ever thought, God needs me. Uh, I can almost guarantee you, you've sung it. Right? I can almost guarantee you've sung it. I'm going to bring up a song here in a minute where you'll see, maybe you haven't sung this particular song, but there are plenty of songs out there which communicate that God actually, really, at the end of the day, he needs us. Um, So our definition of independence, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet the the insufficient part of that definition we we need to clarify here, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him Joy. Now, why does this matter? It, uh, when you're, when you're standing, sitting in the pews and you're hearing the word preached or you're singing the songs of praise to God, Does it matter if you understand to what God you're singing to? On Wednesdays, once a quarter, once a month, you come into this room and you vote. Sometimes you vote on the way money is spent. Sometimes you vote on various other things. And sometimes you vote on who joins this church. We need to understand that those are powerful choices that you're making. Those are powerful votes that you're casting. Because really, it's the congregation who is going to determine the direction of this church long into the future. And if we don't agree on who God is, or we miss these subtle little differences along the way, we don't, we're not trying to rightly understand who God is, and, and these little things sneak into our songs, seems like one little innocent line, but they sneak into our songs and we sing them. I have news for you. Songs catechize the church. The songs that we sing teach you who God is. What happens when a hard time comes your way? Who hasn't started singing it is well? When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Over the years, that hymn has taught you.
how to suffer. Who hasn't sung Amazing Grace? Just walking around the house. Of course you have. But that song has taught you what God's grace is. Almost the same as any Bible verse has taught you what God's grace is. Songs have the ability to rise to the top, be the first thing sometimes that we think about. What happens when the one line is just a little off? It's not quite true. Now you come in here on a Wednesday night, and there's years later, and there's a person, we're not quite sure if they're a Christian or not. And you start casting votes, eh, that's fine. Let's just let them in. Let's be loving and gracious to everybody because the songs that you've sung, the word that you've heard preached from the pulpit has not rightly taught you what God's love really is. So you're not holding people accountable to sin or to anything like that, and so you just, you let them pass. Before long, there's a congregation filled with unregenerate people. Now what? Where's Emmanuel Baptist Church? A hundred years from now. Non-existent. Now, there's a song written by Hillsong that's pretty, pretty new called What a Beautiful Name. This song, I'm not kidding you, if I wouldn't put up the lyrics here, if we were just to listen to it, it's gorgeous. It is a beautiful song. It really is. However, second verse, first line, You didn't want heaven without us. Now, you think about that, and whew, there are some things, there, there's a way I could interpret that maybe, where I could, I could see where they're coming from and what they say. The problem is, the Bible doesn't paint that as the reason why Jesus came. The Bible doesn't give us that reason. In fact, I, I did some digging and I, and I found where the author of the song talked about the reason that he wrote the song. And he said, you know, I really wanted to just explore God's love for us and why he uh, wants to, to bring us with him to heaven. And he made some veiled references to some Bible verses and it seemed to be that where he was getting his information was from John 17 24. I'm going to read the first part of John 17, 24 to you, and then I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Father, I des- this is Jesus praying to the Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Well, that sounds like it affirms what he's saying here in the song, Right? I'm praying that they may be with me where I am. It sounds like, well, he didn't want heaven without us. He wanted to bring us along with him until you finish the verse. You see what the rest of it says. To, what is it? See my glory. That you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. 
It's clear. The Bible makes it very clear. That what God's doing in salvation is a merciful act where he is allowing us to see his glory. He is opening our eyes to salvation that we may behold him as the only begotten of the Father. Do you see what happens, though, when we do this? Now, some of us, if we sang that on Sunday, some of us would, would go, yeah, that's such a good song. It's awesome. Never even think about that line. Now, when you think about heaven, you sung this song, let's say you've sung it a thousand times. When you think about heaven, what do you think the purpose of heaven is? He didn't want heaven without us. The shift is monumental, but it was just one line. But the power is in the pew. Yes, every song that's sung on Sunday morning really uh, goes through me first. So I'm going to sit down with all the songs that are sung, that are going to be sung. David emails me them on Sunday night or Monday morning. I look over them. I read the lyrics. I think about them, whether or not that's true. Some of them are automatically a pass because I know uh, exactly what they say and I've already affirmed them a million times before. Some of them I know are wrong and we're not going to do those, <laughs> right? Uh, and so they're, they're going to go through me first. But ultimately, the power is in the pew. Are you recognizing? Are you listening? Are you paying attention to the lyrics that are being sung? Are you paying attention to the scripture that's being preached? I don't get a free pass on this. Are you paying attention to the scripture that is preached? When I say it in the pulpit, do you look at it in the text? Do you think about it afterwards? Is that true? Is that what that means? Do you talk about it with Christians that you know? Is that what this means? I'm confused by that verse. Is that really what that means? It's on each and every one of us. There's not a soul in this room or that goes to this church that gets a free pass on this. Every single one of us has to be on guard. At some point, I'm going to miss something. I know. I will. Are you going to catch it? Or are we going to catechize the entire church in abhorrent theology? It's tremendously important that we understand who God is because it shapes the future of our church. If we can't agree on who God is, we can really do some damage. Questions? Thoughts, comments? Hopes, dreams? Fears, expectations? Timothy. Right, right, right. That's just a comfort. 
And what we'll explore, we'll continue to explore over the coming weeks is um, there's going to be certain things that we get to that are revealed to us in Scripture, but we don't fully understand. There's going to be some things that we come to that are very difficult to understand. So I'll give you an example. End times, right? If everybody had to agree on the exact same end times position, there's going to be three people in heaven. (laughs) Those three people were, were the only three that agreed with each other, and they ended up being right. Everybody else was all over the map, all over the map. There's some things that we don't fully understand. What happens is, is we come to the text and we go, look, we don't have all the answers here, but here are what's been discussed over the last 2,000 years of church history. Here seem to be the common themes of the answers that people have come to, all of which are dealing with the text that's in front of them, Right? So there are some things that we don't fully understand. That doesn't mean that we have to know every answer, you know, or have every answer in in the Bible at all. That doesn't mean that. There are some differences of opinion. There are some different ways to think about things. There are plenty of those. But there are some very strong consistencies throughout history. Things that this is what it means to be a Christian. The Bible being inerrant and infallible. That's been 2,000 years of church history is affirmed. Yes, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Died for our sins. Punished, suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. 2,000 years of church history affirmed exactly that. Right? We have to nail those things. <laughs> What's that? He is trustworthy. trustworthy. Yeah. Um, So, any other questions, comments, thoughts? Yes. Yes. Uh, Now, here's the deal with man. There's, there's. We could go on a million different rabbit rabbit trails here, and we won't. But. what I've learned is there, Hillsong has a particular thought process about God. And it leads them to some really strange conclusions. He wanted heaven without, he couldn't stand heaven without us or whatever it is. Um, there are some things that they get exactly right. You have to be very, very careful. That teaches you to analyze every word, you know. So, yeah, just have to be very careful. Other questions? Comments?